chapters in the Bible that are so deep in, in what is being taught, the theology behind it, the truth behind it, uh, there's no end to how deeply we could go in our analysis of what is being said in these chapters in, in the book of Romans. That's why for the last few weeks, the sermons have been three hours long. If you haven't been in church, just kidding. You would be surprised at how much work, though, goes into, first of all, understanding what did the Apostle Paul say, second, what did he mean, third, how does that apply to us today, and then fourth, I now have 25 pages of notes, how do I condense it down, you know, to a manageable sermon? So I have been really blessed in my study, very challenged in my study, and I don't promise or pretend to know every single thing about all of these texts. So I'm striving to be clear and very closely tied to what the Bible is saying here. The title of the sermon today is God's Justice on Trial. God's Justice on Trial. It's very easy to figure out what's happening in the text today. God's on trial. God's on trial. And the way he's on trial is the Apostle Paul is quoting a critic, a skeptic, an unbeliever, quoting that person who's challenging God. So God is on trial. That's the tone um, of the text. People often put God on trial and accuse him of being unfair or unloving or untrue. Many in your life, and for many of you, there was a time in your life where God was on trial in your heart. And the fear is that if we could find enough evidence or if God doesn't prove himself, and then we can, we can you know, announce that he is unfair or unloving and untrue, and then we don't have to follow him or worship him or believe in him. You may be surprised to find out that the Bible puts God on trial. And therefore, the Bible takes our questions and doubts and challenges very seriously. Um, there are many people today who are famous for challenging God. Richard Dawkins is one of the four horsemen of the new atheism. Check out this quote by Richard Dawkins where he says this. In his book, The God Delusion, he says, The God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all fiction. Jealous and proud of it, a petty, unjust unforgiving, control freak, a vindictive, bloodthirsty, ethnic cleanser, misogynistic, homophobic, racist, infanticidal, genocidal, filicidal, pestilential, megalomaniacal, sadomasochistic, capriciously malevolent bully. And many feel this way. The God of the Old Testament is the worst character in all of fiction. Meaning he's not even real, but if he was, he would be a monster. The Bible puts God on trial. Many people in the Bible recorded their doubts and questions and accusations against God. And the Bible takes your questions very seriously and provides excellent answers. So today, God's on trial, and we'll find out how that trial turns out. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you that you... Put yourself on the stand. You allow humanity to cross-examine you. You allow saints and sinners alike to lift up doubts, questions, accusations, sometimes with a spirit of faith, sometimes with a spirit of spite. But here in your word today, I pray that you would show us what happens when God is put on trial and answer our doubts and answer our questions. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, in Romans chapter 9, 
Verse 14, continuing on from last week, and this is mid-thought, so you've got to check out the previous sermons to catch up. But in, in chapter 9, whoops, I'm in the wrong book here. All right, here we go. It helps when the preacher's in the right book. <laughs> Romans chapter 9, verse 14. What shall we say then? It's a question. Is there injustice on God's part? That's a question too. Where's that question coming from? So far, the Apostle Paul is showing that according to the Old Testament, in Jesus, God's plan is coming along just as he predicted. Many of the Jews in the New Testament are really, really happy about Moses and Abraham and not happy about Jesus. They think Paul's changing the plan. So these people are voicing in Paul's mind these questions. Well, if this is happening, if this is true, then God's not doing what he said. He's not keeping his promises. You're changing the Old Testament. There's all of these accusations. And so here's a question. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? Jot this down. Number one, is God unfair? First question, is God unfair? Is God unfair? So far, Paul has established that not all who are Israel by blood, not all of the national Israel will be saved. And he has the nerve to suggest that some of those filthy Gentiles are going to be saved. And now he anticipates these objections. Is there injustice on God's part? Is God unfair? We all wonder this when it comes to wrath, who God judges, when it comes to mercy, who God saves. Is he doing it right? Is he unfair? Is he dropping the ball? You're saying Jewish people won't be saved just because they reject Jesus? After all we've done for God, he wouldn't accept us into heaven? That's so unfair. After all God's done for us as a nation, he does turn us away? That's so unfair. So this is the cultural backdrop to this question. God is unfair. Now their protest came out of racism, elitism, and they believe that there are some people God must save, us, and there are other people God must not save, you. In the Jewish temple, in Christ's day, they had a big old wall preventing Gentiles from even getting close to the Holy of Holies. And if you crossed that wall, they killed you on the spot. All right, that's how they felt. So this is the backdrop against what they're feeling. And if God pardons those filthy Gentiles, he's unfair. And if he turns me away, he's unfair. Now we all share these feelings. When God sends people to hell, when he sends them to heaven, does he do it right? And is he fair in even doing that? If you go back to Genesis 18, verse 25, Abraham himself, the founding father of Israel, interrogated God when he was about to judge Sodom and Gomorrah. These verses say this. We'll put it on the screen. Far be it from you, Abraham says, to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so the righteous fair as the wicked. Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? God's on trial. Book of Genesis, God's on trial. And God listens. Okay. All right. Sure, I'll spare the whole city. Spare the whole city for 100 righteous people. Well, what if there's 50? Okay, 50. Well, what if there's 20? Okay, 20. What if there's 10? Okay, 10. And that back and forth shows a lot of things, but it shows that the Bible has indulged the question, is God unfair? God has allowed people to ask it to his face. Are you unfair? Are you unfair? And now people are asking this in the New Testament. So what's the um, response here? In verse 15, or verse 14, Paul says, by no means. You don't have to believe in a God who does unfair things. 
For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I'll have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God, who has mercy. So he's clarifying that justice and fairness does not mean God giving you a medal for doing all your work. That's not justice or fairness. He points to God's mercy, and he uses the Old Testament to do it. So jot this down. God is merciful toward those he saves. God is merciful toward those he saves. Now, when this is said to Moses, I'll have mercy on whom I'll have mercy, that looks back to Exodus 33, 19, where Moses said to God, what? Show me your, show me your, show me your glory. Show me your glory. And there was a light show, but that, but what did God say? There was also a sound show. Exodus 34, 6 to 9 says this. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped, and he said, If now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us, for it is a stiff-necked people, and pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us for your inheritance. So Moses, which the Jews loved pointing to, we have the law, we have the law, we're fine with God, we have the law. Well, what does the law say? You're a stiff-necked people. I don't know what history book you're reading, but God was this close to wiping you off the map, and Moses had to fall on his face and be like, don't do it, don't do it, I know, I know, don't do it, please. And God had mercy on the wicked Israel. He had mercy on them. So now in the New Testament, this whole we are the elect chosen people of God. And God will surely look upon all of our sacrifices and welcome us in. No, it's never been about you doing all of these things for God and him being impressed. Never. He's had mercy on you from the beginning. That's what he's telling the Israelites. And so the proud, self-righteous people in the New Testament have a big problem with a forgiving God. Think of the older brother in the story of the prodigal son. The prodigal son goes out and squanders the father's inheritance, right? And then he comes home, and dad gets excited and has a party. And what does the older brother do? Why are you so excited about him for? I serve you all day long, and I never get a party. My friends never get a party. But you go a party for, for, you know, the prodigal over there. And the older brother can't stand a father who forgives the wicked son who's come home. And that feeling, that, that feeling like, why would God forgive that wicked person is the self-righteous spirit of the Pharisees. This idea that I've earned it and over my dead body will they get in is the spirit that's being confronted here. God has been merciful toward Israel. He's never rewarded Israel for their piety. Think of Jonah. Jonah prayed that God would kill him. When? When? After he saw the biggest revival recorded in the Bible. Hundreds of thousands of people saved in a day. And Jonah's like, I just want to die. Just kill me. Because he didn't want God to forgive wicked people. That heart is so sinful. 
But God, and Paul's using the Old Testament to show this, God is merciful toward those he saves. When he saves Israel, it's because he's being merciful. When he saves Nineveh, it's because he's being merciful. So this whole spirit of like, well, is it even fair for God to save the wicked? Uh, Read your Old Testament. The Pharisees couldn't stand that the tax collectors and the prostitutes were getting saved. Couldn't stand it. They were so self-righteous and racist. Is God unfair? No. When God is merciful toward the wicked, he is not being unfair. He's being God, and he's being the same God he's been in the Old Testament. All right. Well, what about his his judgment? It goes on to say in verse 17, in verse 17 it says, For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up. Now we're talking to Pharaoh. And the scripture is talking to Pharaoh. Isn't that interesting? It's like the Bible is confronting him through Moses. Scripture says to Pharaoh, For this purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. So we have an example of him having mercy on the Israelites and now him dealing with Pharaoh who he judges. Jot this down. God is patient and good toward those he judges. God is patient and good toward those he judges. So when God brings judgment, and it was terrifying judgment on Egypt, God does it in a just manner. It says in Exodus 9, 15 to 17, where this quote comes from, God says this to Pharaoh. This is after he's already decimated the land and Pharaoh's still being stubborn. He says, For by now I could have put out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence, and you would have been cut off from the earth. But for this purpose I have raised you up to show you my power, so that my people or my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. You are still exalting yourself against my people and will not let them go. So note the parallel. When God is merciful, he could have ended Israel like this, but he didn't. He showed mercy. When Pharaoh was, you know, who is God that I should fear him? When Pharaoh was exalting himself, despite being decimated by plague after plague, God says, by now I could have cut you off from the earth. Listen, Egypt was one of the greatest superpowers of the day, and God could have just done a Thanos snap, right? Dust. He could have done that, and he didn't. So is God unfair in his judgment of the wicked? No. Time, 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 warning, time, and then time's up. And then time's up. We see principles of how God behaves toward the righteous who he receives through mercy and the wicked. Both are in need of God's mercy. No one earns it. Both are under God's sovereign direction. The righteous and the wicked are both under God's sovereign direction. They're under his jurisdiction. When he saves sinners, he is just. And when he judges sinners, he is just. He decides, not us. He decides who he saves. He decides who his wrath falls upon. The purpose of this first point is to show that God's mercy and his justice, or God's mercy and his judgment are both compatible with his justice. He's doing nothing wrong. He's doing nothing wrong. And his mercy and his judgment are compatible with God and his plan as found in the Old Testament. Is God unfair? No. He's doing nothing wrong. 
Now that doesn't answer all of our questions, so let's move on to the next one. The next one in verse 17 says this, or verse 19. For you will say to me then, well, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? So here's the next question. Well, if he's going to judge who he judges and forgive who he forgives, then what's, what's even the purpose of trying? Who can, who can resist his will? If we're just all on his plan, why would I even care? So number two, you can jot this down. The question is, why does God still blame us? If we're just under his will and he decides what to do with us, why does he still find fault? Who can resist his will? The tension here is, if God is in sovereign direction of the whole universe, which he is, how then can I be responsible for my actions, which I am? And the Bible affirms both of these things. Both God is in sovereign total control of everything in your world, and you are responsible for your decisions. Both are true. This uh, exposes the tension. Why does he still find fault? Who can resist his will? It asks the question freely. Verse 20, but who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to the molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory? Even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. So why does God still blame us? If God finds me guilty, he's wrong, because I'm just following his will. He's wrong to find me guilty, because I'm just part of his plan. That's the objection. Paul looks back here to Isaiah 29 and 45, this whole idea of a, a why do you talk back to God? Why do you, O oh man, talk back to God? He looks back to Isaiah 29 and 45. And in Isaiah 29, 16, um, what's quoted there is uh, a person, is a, a pot talking back to a potter. All right, a pot talking back to a potter. And in Isaiah 29, 16, the pot says, he did not make me. And in Isaiah 45, 9, the potter, the pot says to the potter, he doesn't even have any hands. So this is, a really funny image here. Here's a picture of a pot and a potter. And the picture of the pot and the potter gives us this image. And imagine if that pot said, he doesn't even have any hands. It's meant to be really funny. A pot talking back to the potter. Or, or even worse, the pot saying, he didn't make me. It's meant to be really funny. Uh, and when it comes to this image of like a pot talking back, to a potter, it indicts the person who's putting God on trial. You know, this pot saying, what are, what are you doing up there? You know, get your hands off of me. If you're even up there, what a mess you are making. And the Bible basically here says, stop being a sassy pot. You're being a sassy pot. Here's a video of a potter doing his work, which I found pretty interesting. The potter is so careful to start with clay. And remember what the Bible says, you're dust, right? Without God, you're just dust. So just run your hand along the top of a shelf today at home, and that's what you are. And then God did something. He gave you life, and, and he made you. And this idea of a potter, look at the care 
the precision. He even reached for a blowtorch there a second ago, right? I mean, you know, and, and so there's all these things God has done to make you who you are. I love the, the, you know, the dirt on the hands of the potter. Like he's that involved in your life, in, in who you are, in who you're becoming. Uh, you're the pot, he's the potter. And the thought of you being a sassy pot, talking back, denying there's even a creator, denying he's even made you, is really indicting. It's really indicting. It's supposed to be funny, like, <laughs> why am I doing this? <laughs> it's supposed to be futile. Like, good luck with that. You're talking back to the potter. That's not going to go well for you. It's not going to work for you to talk back to the potter. It's funny. It's futile. In those verses, it says, Woe to him who quarrels with his maker. Woe to him in Isaiah who quarrels with his maker. Meaning it's one thing to say, God, I've got some questions that I'd like help getting answers to. And it's another thing to say, get your hands off of me. I will never follow you. That's a problem. That's a problem of defiance. So this idea of why does God still blame us? Um, Paul responds by highlighting a funny relationship that clearly portrays defiance. Meaning your will is defying the will of God. And that's not his fault. That's your fault. It's portraying a defiance that is inexcusable. Um, and this uh, shows us how God deals with people who defy him. Um, there's one more picture I have. I think this is a picture of the pot when this potter is done. And it shows you the beauty that in the end could come about from somebody who invites the potter to make them uh, who he intends. But the point here is that God is going to make of the righteous and the wicked something to serve his purpose. So let's unpack that. Jot this down. God is patiently enduring those who defy him. God is patiently enduring those who defy him. Why does God still blame the defiant? Well, it says here in verse 21, has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? Uh, the idea there is God is the creator and he can, he can do with our lives what he wants because it's not ours, it's his. Okay, so life is not yours, it's his. Uh, this is not trying to defend the justice of God yet and how he's dealing with you. It's just meant to establish the reality that you are a created being. You did not make yourself. You are a made being. And therefore, God has total authority with your life to do whatever he wants because it's not your life, it's his. You belong to him. Uh, and does he not have the right? Absolutely he has the right. And it says to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable. So one lump, let's say, you know, that stands for humanity, uh, sinful humanity, same substance. We all come from the same substance. And can't he make different lives out for different purposes? Yes. He's the creator. He can do that. What if God, now it gets specific on what he's doing, what if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? So how is God treating those people who his wrath will fall upon. Well, he wants to show his power. He wants to make his wrath known. He's enduring them with much patience. He's preparing them for destruction. So God is, as the potter, working in the person's life who defies him to still achieve God's purposes. Now, for some people, that's unsettling, right? Because they're afraid that this means they have no other choice but to become a pot of destruction. I don't think that's what the Bible teaches. Um, you know, if I have these loved ones in my life who aren't saved, 
What do I really want God to do in their lives? Uh, do I want God to walk away and to stop interfering with them and to just leave them alone? No. That would be really bad. Agreed? If God's just like, they're on their own. If the potter walks away, what hope do they have? Correct? I want his strong, holy, sovereign, just hand on their life. I want the potter to be hard at work. Don't you? Don't you? Don't you want to see a list of a billion things God's doing in the lives of your lost loved ones, even if it's unpleasant? This brings me comfort. God is still enduring patiently those who defy him. He has a purpose. He's delaying judgment, even though they're resisting stubbornly. And we find out in Romans 2, you know, what the heart of God is. It says in Romans 2, 2 to 5, we know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who do such things. Do you suppose, O oh man, you who judge those who do such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? So what is God waiting for? Well, his kindness is meant to lead sinners to repentance. But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. God's patient enduring of the wicked is so that they would repent. He wants them to repent. Instead, they're filling up their jar with wrath, 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 coming wrath. God is the potter, the creator, and he is preparing the defiant for judgment. How? By showing them patience and kindness and giving them time. And in response, they're saying, get your hands off me. God is not the problem. God is not doing anything unfair. God is not doing anything unjust. He's not. That's how God is treating the wicked. But how is he treating those who are being saved? And is it even right that he takes some of these sassy pots and makes them sons and daughters forever? It is. Jot this down. God is preparing glory for those under his mercy. He's preparing glory for those under his mercy. In verse 23, it says, In order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. The word mercy in the Bible means to meet you in your misery and lead you out. To, to, to not give you what you do deserve. That's mercy. Grace is when God gives you what you don't deserve. Mercy is when God doesn't give you what you should have got. And when, when we deserve judgment and God doesn't give that to us, that's mercy. And it says here that God is making known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. So this is now looking back to the past again, dealing with the idea of election. And what does he mean by this? It means that he's preparing glory for those under his mercy. When it comes to people who are going to be saved, God had this plan before time began. The Bible is reassuring followers of Christ in this text that you're not on the wrong plan. This has been the plan from before time. There is a God. He has a plan. And he's calling you as his children home through his mercy. This is his plan. This is what he's prepared beforehand. So don't lose heart. You're on the plan. Now this point simply establishes that God the creator has the absolute right to decide what to do with his creation. God is in charge of who goes to heaven and who goes to hell. That's good news because who else should be in charge of that? You? 
You want a legal pad? Who? The Supreme Court? Who's going to be in charge of it? I think we'd all agree that it's really good news that God's the only one allowed to be in charge of who goes to heaven and who goes to hell. But the question remains, is he going to do a good job? That's what you're afraid of. If you're, if you're honest, you wouldn't want anyone else in your life to be in charge of who goes to heaven and who goes to hell. Except maybe your dog, right, who loves you. Well, I'm sure to get in, you know, Spencer's in charge of the list. <laughs> Everyone's getting in except the mailman. <laughs> it's good news that God is in charge. But the question is, is he doing a good job? Is he doing something wrong in commanding the destinies of all? Again, Paul looks to the Old Testament and looks to the Word of God, and his line of reasoning is meant to show us that God can be trusted. So, number three, what shall we say then? Jot that down. What, what shall we say then? Is God unfair? Uh, no, he's merciful toward those he saves. He's patient toward those he judges. But why does he still blame us? Well, he's patiently enduring those who defy him, and he's preparing glory for those under his mercy. Well, what shall we say then? What shall we say then? Many worry that the Bible here teaches that you have no control over the potter's purpose, right? Many read these verses, and they're like, oh, so if he's molding me for heaven, hooray. If he's molding me for hell, oh well. That's not what the Bible is leading you to think here. The Bible here is not meant to remove your choice. The Bible is meant to expose your defiance and to redirect your choice. To redirect your choice. The book of Romans is an invitation for those who are spiritually misguided to, reject, to redirect their choice. For those who have followed Christ, this passage is meant to reassure your choice. You're on the right way. Don't fall away from Christ. Don't believe your, you know, your old Jewish relatives who say you've got to follow Moses. No, no, no. Reassuring. You follow Jesus. So there's nowhere here that's meant to remove your choice and be like, well, just sit back, pot, figure out where God's going to put you. No. It's meant to either redirect your choice or reassure your choice. And it's meant to show you that whatever you're deciding, you will serve God's purpose. His eternal plans are what will prevail. So how do we know who is bound for glory and how they're getting there? How do we know who is defying him and how they're doing it? Well, let's read on. It says in verse 25, as indeed he says in Hosea, so now he quotes Hosea, those who were not my people, I will call my people. Her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the same place where it was said to them, you are not my people, they will be called sons of the living God. You know the story of Hosea? So God told Hosea to marry who? Gomer. Gomer. Here's my girlfriend, Gomer. <laughs> and she was a adulterous woman, and God said, go marry her. And he's like, these prophets had to do crazy things. So he married the adulterous woman. Of course, she was not faithful, right? They have two kids, though. And so God says, I want you to name, name your second child, your daughter. Here's, here's her name. Don't look in the baby name book. I'm going to give it to you. Name her this, not loved. Anybody here named not loved? <laughs> what did your parents name you? Not loved. <laughs> not loved. Then a third child came along, and they had to name the child not my people. What's your name? Not my people. Oh, how beautiful. <laughs> what is God doing, though? He's using this relationship between the prophet and the adulterous wife to show how Israel is treating God, right? And how God is treating Israel. You are an adulterous nation. 
and I'm going to show this to you. And so you're, you are not my people. You are not loved. And he's showing them, he's DTR, determining the relationship to show them where they stand with him. Thankfully, though, there was a promise attached to this, that though God would treat them for a time uh, through exile, he would push them away, he would bring them back. It says in verse 26, and in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, they will be called sons of the living God. So the way God interacted with Israel where he would call them back, uh, it, now Paul is using that to show that he's doing the same thing to the Gentiles. They were not his people, and now he's calling them his people. So he's not doing anything unfair by saving the Gentiles. He's actually being the same God he's always been. Remember Israel? You weren't his people either, and he called you back. Um, so reading on, it says in verse 27, and Isaiah, now he's quoting Isaiah, Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. Fully and without delay. He's quoting here uh, Isaiah, Isaiah 1.9. As Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. So you have here God calling a people his own who were not his people, and you have God judging severely his people Israel. Now Paul's using that to say, hey, this is what I'm saying. All the Gentiles are believing in Jesus and they're getting saved and you're rejecting him and you're going to be judged. Look, it's in the Old Testament. So God's not doing anything unfair. Now he brings all of these verses, Isaiah 1.9, Hosea 2.23, Isaiah 28.16 is coming up. He's, he's using all these verses to show that God is being God. God is being God. The same God he's been. In verse 30... What shall we say then? That the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it? That is a righteousness that is by faith. But that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith. But as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So this is Isaiah 28, 16, and note what he stresses here. Whoever believes in him, it's faith. It's faith in the cornerstone, the stumbling stone. It's faith in this rock that God would lay down from Isaiah that would determine where you stand with God. Now, how do we unpack this? You can jot this down. All who pursue righteousness, fill this in, all who pursue righteousness by works will stumble to destruction. By works will stumble to destruction. Verse 31, Israel pursued a law. Why did they not succeed in reaching it? Verse 32, because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. So you have Paul, this former Pharisee, intending to correct misguided spiritual effort. And this is the truth, people. A lot of religious folks will go to hell. Because religious people don't go to heaven. Saved people go to heaven. People of faith go to heaven, not religious people. And so the religious elite are now finding out God doesn't accept their report card in good grades. Their religious merit is worthless. And they're finding out a flunky can get saved just for trusting this carpenter. And then Paul says, the Old Testament said so. They can't take it anymore. They just can't take it. 
But this is God. He's doing what he promised. He's doing what he said. All who pursue righteousness by works will stumble to destruction. Isaiah 1.9, God warned you in the word that he would judge you for your rebellion. Listen, maybe you're doing it your own way. Maybe you have some thoughts about Jesus, but he's not your Lord and your Savior yet. And you're doing it your own way. You need to understand that here you are today hearing from the word of God that God has an eternal plan in Christ Jesus and anyone who's doing it their own way by their own works, by their own merit, God is not going to welcome them into glory forever. In fact, he's preparing those people for wrath and destruction. Uh, you have to understand that when you get to heaven, you're not going to show God a picture of what you drew. Here's who I think you should be. Here's how I think you should act. And here's who I think you should say He's not going to look at that and be like, oh, well, let's do it Cindy's way. He isn't going to care what you think because he's God. But he does have a plan, and it's a wonderful plan, and it's a loving plan, and it's a merciful plan. And the Bible says, whosoever will may come. It's open to all. I just need to exhort you to not think that when you get in front of an almighty God, and you sass back to him about how he says your life should work, that's not going to end well for you. I'm warning you now with the authority of God's word behind me. Your way won't work. That includes what you believe that is contrary to the Bible, and that includes how you behave that is contrary to the Bible. Anyone who pursues righteousness by works will stumble to destruction. Jot this down. But anyone who pursues righteousness by faith will be children of God. Anyone. Anyone. By faith will be children of God. It says here that the Gentiles did receive it. It says, what shall we say then? The Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is a righteousness that is by faith. But Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone. And this is a beautiful portrayal here. It says here in Isaiah, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling. Elsewhere, this, uh, this stone is called a foundation stone, a cornerstone. So imagine the, a stone being laid by a builder that is meant to be one of the most important stones, either a foundation or a cornerstone that everything lines up to or a capstone that holds the whole thing together. But just imagine this giant. I mean, they had huge stones in these architectural buildings in, in Rome. There would be a, a, there, one, one foundation stone could be as long as this room. I mean, just huge. And imagine God throws that down and says, this is what you are to build your life on. And then there are people who step onto that stone and build their entire life on it. Jesus said, if you build your life on my teachings, right, though the wind and the waves rise against you, uh, you won't fall. There are people who accept Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, and God calls them to be his church, and you're on the stone, right? You are lined up with that. And you're part of this temple that God is building. Now, other people stumble over it. And it's not just casual. God is thrusting them toward the truth of Christ, and they're not receiving it. And so they're falling over it to their own destruction. Basically tripping on the crucified Savior, imagine that, tripping over him on their way to destruction. God is determined to make every nation, tribe, and tongue to face his son. And those who reject it are portrayed here as there's this giant stone and it's like you just tripped over it on your way to destruction. But those who believe in Christ by faith are children of God. Children of God. Paul uses the Old Testament to convince 
primarily Jewish objectors here, hey, this is the way. There is a God. He has a plan. That plan is named Jesus. You can trust his mercy toward those who are being saved because he's fulfilling his promises found in the Messiah in the Old Testament. You can trust his judgment that's falling on the wicked because they're rejecting his patience and they're rejecting the Messiah. God is doing nothing wrong. He's doing what he said he would do. You can trust him. And this is an invitation to get with the program. Hey, listen, I don't know where you stand with Jesus Christ today, but I want you to know that you're clay in the hands of your maker. Whoever you think you are, whatever you've accomplished in this life, God is in charge of molding your eternity. You're not in charge of that. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, this should give you tremendous reassurance. God's hands are shaping your destiny. Your life is serving his grand purpose, and he's been planning this from before time. If you have loved ones who are unsaved, this should reassure you. God has not walked away or left them to themselves. His hands are moving in their lives. Their, their sass has not driven the potter away. Praise God. And if you're here today and you're not saved by faith in Jesus, this should truly lead you to repentance. The Bible is clear. This is meant to lead you to repentance, to say, I'm not right with God. I don't know his son. I'm not headed for glory. This is meant to waken you up to God's behavior toward you and to warn you that you don't get to decide alone where you spend eternity. God does that. If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord, he will lead you into heaven forever. If you refuse him, he'll prepare you for eternity apart from him. Which is it? Which is it? The time is coming soon, soon, when you'll stand before your maker. Are you ready for that? Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, I know that there are, there's so much in these passages that could be confusing, but hopefully it's been pretty clear today that you are a God who is sovereign and awesome and holy and involved in our lives. Thank you first for making us. We're dust. We're dust that you breathed on. And though we may feel like more than that, we're not. Apart from you and your love and your grace, we'd still be dust. So, Lord, our gratitude just grows out of the reality that we have a creator. And you have a purpose. You have a plan. You're inviting us to receive your mercy, to become a jar of clay that is filled with unstoppable power, to be a jar of clay that is filled with eternal love and grace, to be a jar of clay that is filled with all the promises of your word. You want us to invite you to be Savior. Lord, I just think of those here today who realize that their way will not work. Maybe they're ready to repent. Maybe they're ready to stop talking back to you. Maybe they're ready to stop having a defiant spirit. Maybe they're ready to humble themselves and to thank you for making them and to thank you for all the things you've done to shape their lives. And Lord, maybe they're ready to say, Jesus, Messiah, Cornerstone, be my salvation. Maybe they're ready to believe that Jesus came into the world and lived the perfect life and died on the cross and rose in glory. Maybe they're ready to believe that heaven is not our kingdom, but his. And it's a great feast and banquet that we've been invited to. Maybe today they lay down their sin and they say, forgive me, Father. Receive me through Jesus Christ. And if so, show them that you have been preparing their salvation from before time and their glory will never be taken away from them. This is the plan. Help them not to lose heart. Lord, for those who are believers and yet they're, they're struggling and wrestling and wondering if you care for them and if you love them, remind them that you have had plans from before time to shower your love and care upon us, to lead us on to glory for all time. God is for us. Who could be against us? Reassure us of that today. 
And Father, we do continue to pray with sorrow and anguish in our hearts for those who we know who don't know you. Thank you that you have not abandoned them. Thank you that you have not turned them over to themselves. You are the potter. They are the clay. Continue your work to lead them to repentance, showing them patience, showing them kindness, and use us, Lord, to expose their heart, to welcome them in as children of the living God. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's stand and let's sing together. Great is thy 